Welcome to Primary Care Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Hassan Johan. Today I'm really excited because this is our first international podcast. I'll be speaking to Dr. Mark Abel, who's a family physician and a professor at the University of Georgia in the US. Today we're going to be focusing on some of the differences between the US and the UK health system, but specifically in reference to cancer care. Mark has been involved in global research across 20 countries, looking specifically at cancer screening programs. I'm hoping to hear more about that today, as well as his thoughts on some of the latest developments and innovations in this field. Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. I I suppose the first thing to say really is, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, about these podcasts you've been producing over in the U.S.? Yeah, sure. I've been involved with uh, medical editing and uh, dissemination of medical information for a long time here in the U.S. I'm editor-in-chief of uh, Essential Evidence, which is a primary care reference. Also work with our main journal here in the U.S. called American Family Physician. And for a long time, we've been doing something called POEMS, which is patient-oriented evidence that matters. And we review about 100 journals each month, and we identify those that we think family doctors um, here and, and elsewhere ought to know about because they have the potential to change and improve practice. And so I do a weekly podcast with Dr. Mike Wilkes from UC Davis called Poem of the Week. And then recently we started doing a bi-weekly po- podcast called Primary Care Update. And I do that with a couple of family physicians from uh, Michigan, who I used to work with at Michigan State University. And uh, we really enjoy just getting together for 20, 25 minutes and talking about three or four studies and having a bit of fun. So, Mark, as you know, today we're going to try to focus on cancer, and I understand you're involved in a, in a, in a United States task force looking at cancer prevention, and you've, you've been involved in global research on cancer screening. Um, could you tell me a bit, bit about that? Yeah, it's, I was on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force for four years, and it's a group of 16 mostly academic generalist physicians, and we're tasked with making recommendations around things like when do we begin mammography, how often... How do we screen for colorectal cancer? Should people take aspirin? If so, when? Things like that. There are about 70 sets of recommendations that the group makes. And I learned a great deal being on that group. And in the past few years, I I have had the opportunity to go to other countries and talk to GPs and primary care physicians in Germany, in the UK, Ireland, Italy, about how they do cancer screening. And so I got very interested in the idea of comparing across countries, uh, particularly in the U.S., often we tend to forget that there are other countries out there that have the same challenges and problems, and we can potentially learn from them. And so I recruited some graduate students, and we went through the cancer screening recommendations for the 20 countries that spend the most on healthcare, And uh, it was really quite interesting. It, it sounds very fascinating, Mark. I must confess. I mean, you know, sometimes when you're sat here working in, in, in the United Kingdom, you sort of look over the states and think they must have a completely different system of cancer screening. And I, I still don't fully understand the private state-funded healthcare system over America and how that really works with regards to particularly something like cancer screening. Um, I don't think yeah. you could explain that to me in a simple way, could you? Yeah, well, it's uh, unfortunately calling the U.S. health system a system is being, I think, very generous. Um, We have a number of different systems. We have publicly financed care for the elderly and for the very poor. We have a single payer, if you will, similar to the NHS for veterans of the armed services. We have a great deal of employer funded insurance like they do in Germany or France. Switzerland. So it's really a mishmash of, of, of different systems. 
And um, unfortunately, we still have uh, about 10% of the population that has no health insurance. I actually volunteer in a clinic every week where we see patients who don't have health insurance. And that's something that uh, most countries, of course, don't have to uh, be concerned about, right. at least not to the same extent that we do in the U.S. And so that creates a, its own challenges around cancer screening. You know, I think one of the one of the things that's really different about the U.S. versus the U.K., at least my understanding, is that in the U.K., much of cancer screening is more centrally organized. And so patients will be mailed their fecal occult blood test or their FIT test, whereas here screening is much more opportunistic. Uh, there really isn't a role for a central government agency or public health service in cancer screening. Uh, we really rely on a physician to remember to order a test when they happen to see the patient. And so that can lead to some gaps, uh, unfortunately. You're quite right, Mark, in that. So we have, uh, we have national screening programs um, and they are administered centrally in terms of usually the invites, but actually they're delivered locally. Um, so, mm-hmm. so, you know, there are, there are various examples. So, so probably the best, well de- the most well-developed one we have within the UK is the breast and cervical cancer screening. Um, moving on from that, we have some, you know, as you say, the fecal occult bloods, which has sort of come in, uh, I won't say ad hoc, but come in via a, a patch type method. Um, and then we've got AAA screening, which has also started to, to infiltrate and come in as well. So we've got these several screening programs. And, you know, one on the side is prostate cancer, where we have no national screening program. And, uh, and as I'm sure you know from reading papers, the academics can't decide whether to or not. Yeah, and that really creates a challenge for us GPs in in terms of creating the space during the encounter to have that conversation, yeah. to um, you know have uh, time to do that well. And all of the guidelines here in the U.S. from the American College of Physicians and the Cancer Society and the even the urologists and the USPSTF they all recommend shared decision making fifty five to sixty nine years. Um, but I think in general, one of the things we learned when we compared cancer screening programs across countries was the U.S. tends to be quite aggressive in general around cancer screening, more so than, than many other countries. Uh, there were commonalities. You know, we saw most countries screen for breast cancer every two years from 50 to 70, roughly. Um, but then there were things that we do more aggressively. Lung cancer screening is another one that I think is fairly unique to the U.S. Oh, so we don't have a lung cancer screening program here within the U.K. How does that work, Mark? Well, it's it's somewhat controversial. And I think I was on the task force when we voted on that and we approved it. And that was based on the National Lung Screening Trial, which was a big study here in the U.S. And it showed a pretty impressive benefit, not only in terms of lung cancer mortality reduction, but also all-cause mortality reduction, which for screening programs is pretty unusual. The, the concern is that when it gets rolled out into the community, that physicians in the community, the radiologists, won't necessarily follow the same protocols, that there may be more false positives, more biopsies, more surgeries, that the surgery complication rate may be higher. And we're getting some indications that that may be the case. So uh, it's being watched quite closely to see if the ideal setting of the national lung screening trial can be replicated in real world clinical practice. So is it, is it fair to say, so with, with that screening program, so you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Wilson's criteria that we, we tend to aspire to here whenever we're looking at a screening program. Um, is that something that you think the state sort of use or, or, or not really? Well, I'm, I'm actually not familiar with Wilson's criteria, so that may be part of your answer. <laughs> I mean, we do have the, the USPSTF has a very rigorous evidence-based uh, approach to looking at 
um, the, the evidence. We have, we have to create an analytic framework. We have a series of key questions. And what we hope to find is direct evidence from a randomized trial that screening improves patient outcomes at minimal harms compared to not screening. And, you know, we really did see that with the lung screening trial. The, the question is going to be in the implementation and the dissemination, you know, if, if the complication rates are higher in community settings than at university settings, then we could see some of that net benefit go away. I suspect, I mean, that, that essentially that's some of the themes of Wilson's criteria and, and, and you know, it's something that um, I'm sure probably is thought of. It's, it's, a, it's a criteria that I, I wouldn't be able to quote right now. It's, it's flashes in my mind from the days at medical school um, in terms of you know, mm -hmm. deciding whether something is suitable for screening or not. Yeah, there's a World Health Organization that has a set of criteria that are probably quite similar. Uh, we talk about the FRAME criteria named after Paul mm -hmm. FRAME here in the U.S., so I suspect it's looking sure at the same things. So, so, Mark, if we could go back to your your um, th th your, in your investigation, if you like, into cancer screening uh, across the globe, um, did you find any key themes or key differences that haven't been highlighted already? Well, I, I, again, there were some commonalities, some themes that emerged in terms of uh, consistently uh, valuing uh, breast cancer screening in women 50 to 70, consistently cervical cancer screening with uh, a start age of 25 to 30. There were exceptions. Some study, some countries were starting a little earlier. Uh, I think the tests that were used, one thing I noticed was in the U.S., we recommend any of seven potential tests for colorectal cancer screening. They just basically say, do something. And many patients here and, and most physicians prefer colonoscopy. Whereas in most other countries, it's fecal immunochemical testing or some variant on fecal occult yeah. blood testing. Uh, in only a couple of countries, I think Germany was one of them, include uh, colonoscopy as one of the, the options for a screening test, not for follow-up. And you know, if you look at the years of life gained by screening for colorectal cancer, colonoscopy really isn't much better. Uh, it is more expensive and it is there are more potential harms. So I'm not sure we have that completely right here in the States. All right. And that, I mean, that, that's interesting to hear. It takes me back to my, my earlier comment, really, with regards to my perception of, of the States, where, where I've always thought of the States as more interventionalist than, uh, than us here in the UK. Uh, from the sounds of what you're mm -hmm. saying, I'm not sure that's necessarily across the patch. Well, it's, um, I think there is a, a tendency toward intervention. We have a more of a market-driven uh, health system. And so there are often, you know, my sister's an economist actually right. in, in London, and uh, she will say that, uh, you know, people follow their incentives. And we have a lot of incentives in our U.S. health system to do more things to people. And doing more things isn't always a good idea. And so, for example, the American College of Radiology is the only group that we could find anywhere in the world that recommended annual mammography rather than every other year or every third year as in the UK. Um, and, you know, you, you can't help but think that the revenue generated by doing annual mammography rather than biennial is part of that. You know, there may be an intellectual conflict of interest as well, but you know, when we're incentivized to do more things, we tend to do more things. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know whether you've read it. I read a book several years ago by Dr. Welch. I think he's, he's somewhere north in the States, actually. Uh, and it's called Overdiagnosed. Yeah, Gil Welch. That's it. Yeah, Gilbert Welch. That's it. Yeah. Um, and it's really, I think the book was called Overdiagnosed. And it really concentrates on that theme, doesn't it, in terms of he specifically looked at uh, breast cancers and, and the interval between diagnosis. And, and you know, it's, it's like everything. It's the 
the, the, the more you increase the screening, the greater you might have the pickup rate. Uh, but the end uh, conclusion of that book was that it doesn't necessarily change uh, mortality or change the outcome. Uh, rather, it probably changes the morbidity for those for those patients involved. Yeah, he's done a great job of popularizing and educating uh, physicians about this idea of overdiagnosis. And in the context of cancer screening, what we're talking about are detecting things that look like a cancer to a pathologist. To you know, pathologists say swear up and down that's a cancer, but in reality, it would never behave like a cancer. And about 20%, our best guess is that about 20% of breast cancers fall into that category of overdiagnosed where it looks like a cancer, we treat it like a cancer, but had it been untreated, the patient never would have known about it. It never would have caused symptoms or harmed them. And so that's one of the potential harms as our technology gets better, as we get better sensitivity, we detect more of these more indolent lesions. And so there's a lot of thinking around, should we, what do we call things? For example, calling um, ductal carcinoma in situ, is that using the word carcinoma there for that lesion? Is that appropriate? There are thyroid lesions that are uh, in, in countries where they've done widespread ultrasound screening. They had huge increases in the number of thyroid cancers detected. Um, those thyroid cancers, uh, you know, most of those were indolent, uh, yet they were treated aggressively. And so um, I think we have to be thoughtful just because we have a new technology like, for example, point of care ultrasound. How do we use that in a way that doesn't cause net harm to that's, our patients? Uh, that's really interesting to hear. Uh, t today, I just had a talk from the, the, I think he's the UK chief medical officer for a company called Optum, which you may be familiar with. I think they're uh, very big in the States, uh, running several of the ACOs. Uh -huh. uh, and we looked at um, uh, you know, harmonizing a data set for a defined population and then from that population calculating uh, complexity for individuals, which then leads to the potential for uh, directed outcomes for those patients with the end benefit of reducing cost to the healthcare system, uh, which to my mind seems an interesting concept and actually completely undeniable in terms of being able to challenge it. Uh, but actually, as you say, it comes with risks uh, in that actually if you're specifying interventions for patients, you might risk over-medicalizing some of their conditions. Uh, and, and I'm not yet convinced that although there may be a cost saving, whether that maybe makes a difference to the outcome for that individual patient. Uh, but I think I might get proved wrong on that one. Well, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of those kinds of innovations and people are thinking about ways to, you know, uh, you know, should we put clinics in pharmacies in the U.S.? Should we, uh, you know, Walmart's a big retailer in the U.S. and they're opening clinics, primary care clinics in the Walmart stores. There are companies like IBM that are thinking about putting uh, primary care clinics in their workplaces to keep patients or their, their employees healthier, hopefully. Um, but the evidence that these things are beneficial, how they interact with the primary care system, do they really provide primary care or are they just providing episodic care for illnesses? So I think there are a lot of questions about that. And, and I think the promise of information technology for many of us who see patients has been somewhat disappointing. And, and I think there's still a, a lot of unrealized potential in terms of using information technology to improve um, primary care. You're listening to Primary Care Talks with Dr. Hassan Chahan. I suppose bringing it back to um, 
cancer. I guess I should ask you whether or not you've had or whether you've ever done a, a bit of a comparison between the, the UK and the US with regards to technology and innovation in the fight against cancer? You know, most of my work has been around um, screening. And so, and we certainly have looked to the UK for uh, a lot of the key clinical trials that have informed our cancer screening decisions. So the the, the most recent largest trial on mammography in women in their 40s, uh, the mass trial for um, AAA screening, the recent uh, one-time prostate cancer screening trial. Uh, there have been a number of uh, really important innovative clinical trials that are informing cancer screening here. In terms of the technologies, I know that uh, I believe the UK has been using the older guaiac-based fecal occult blood test, but I think is now in the process of shifting toward fecal immunochemical testing. Is that the case? We are indeed. I think it's it's not been implemented. So so we have a, uh, a fecal occult blood screening program, which is, as I said earlier, on national. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we've made the change over to immunochemical testing yet, uh, but it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a study recently where they were comparing the uptake and there was better uptake. They, they did a randomized trial in the UK and found better uptake with the FIT testing because you don't have to do the, the preparation. But no, I think we could learn, I think the US could learn a lot from the UK in terms of organizing centrally the invitation to screen. I suppose, I suppose the next question is, is with regards to, you know, you, you seem to churn through a lot of studies over there when you're doing your podcast. <laughs> uh, impressive, I must say. I'm not sure where you find the time, but I guess from from, from all the papers that you read and from your, your podcasts, uh, what do you think are the next big developments, specifically, I suppose, for prevention, if that's if that's your primary focus? Yeah, I think the innovations that are coming, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in what we call, you know, colloquially a liquid biopsies. Um, you know, are there blood tests that can detect serum biomarkers of cancer? And I think that's certainly a fascinating idea. I think a lot of us have a concern that unless the specificity of those tests is extremely high, it has the potential to lead to a lot of unnecessary follow-up testing and imaging and biopsies that, you know, while they may be profitable and they may be, you know, there may be health systems that see that as a, a profit center in the U.S. at least, um, I, you know, I think we have to be very careful that they provide a net benefit. It's so easy with cancer screening to focus on the benefit side of the equation and the potential years of life saved uh, and the harm that's avoided. But we also have to look at the other side, which is that um, as, as Muir Gray said, screening can always be harmful. Occasionally, it's helpful. Um, you know, anybody that gets screened has the potential burdens and costs and, and even harms of biopsies and worry and overdiagnosis. We have to make sure that we look at both sides of that equation as we roll out these new technologies. I'm going to ask you about that in a, in a second, actually, because um, so, so in, in one of my one of my roles at the Eastern Academic Health Science Network is the, the chair for the Innovation Exchange. Uh, so I'm not sure you've heard of it, but this is something we've set up with the prime intention of ex attracting innovators um, and people with challenges. One of the campaigns is, of course, cancer. We're looking for people to make suggestions for their challenges. Uh, and at the same time, we've got some innovators that are coming across with, with exciting ideas that they've either tested or are looking to test. Um, not necessarily research, but these have got to be proven uh, innovations. So. I guess what would be really useful is if, if maybe I could run a few past you and just to get your thoughts on some of those. Sure, yeah. I'll do my best. Sounds like a great Perfect. program. Um, I mean, so one of those we've already talked about inadvertently, which was about um, uh, doing a liquid biopsy in, in terms of a blood test to look for molecular information about tumors. 
um, basically looking around, getting DNA samples from the blood, which might be able to direct um, what we're going to do in terms of the, 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 the structure of the tumor and, and then being able to tailor treatment. Um, any more thoughts about that? Well, I think that that's really where it has the greatest potential role. And, you know, when we think about um, overdiagnosis, you know, we're trying to sort out the aggressive cancers from the indolent cancers. And particularly in breast cancer, certainly in prostate cancer, uh, perhaps to some extent in lung cancer, it's a really important issue. We want to make sure we are aggressively treating those cancers where there's potential benefit and that we perhaps monitor or do surveillance when it's likely that a cancer is going to be indolent. And I think these kind of, this kind of molecular information about tumors and biomarkers can provide that, those insights. And I think that's going to be really important moving forward so we can do a better job of individualizing care. Definitely. I think it's, it's, it's really got to be part of the future. And, and of course, it's, it's um, a little bit more palatable in terms of an investigation for the patient as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the concern is that people are some, some folks are, are uh, thinking about these in terms of a screening test in a healthy person. And if you're, even if it's 99% specific, that means one in a hundred people will end up having to get a CT or an MRI, or if it's less specific than that, more. And so that's where we, we have to be careful. And I guess one of the other ones is I was browsing your website uh, recently and you've got a link with artificial intelligence is that right well um we actually have a, a faculty of artificial intelligence here at at the um, university of georgia i've done some work with um, artificial neural networks and machine learning as ways to uh, identify to improve diagnosis uh, we've been working on identifying which patients who are hospitalized and undergo CPR are unlikely to benefit from uh, CPR. So we can perhaps have a discussion ahead of time uh, around do not resuscitate orders, things like that. So I think that's where I've been uh, interested in uh, some of the potential in terms of helping us okay. uh, make better decisions or support our decision making. Well, it would be, it would be good to hear your thoughts. I mean, some time ago, I went to, I was fortunate enough to go to Microsoft headquarters here in the UK, and we got a look at the HoloLens, uh, looking at you know, 3D imaging. Uh, and that led on to the conversation about the potential of being able to look at images themselves, CT scans, etc., in 3D. Uh, and I know there are certain studies that are going on in the States uh, and some here in the UK uh, at looking at artificial intelligence solutions towards images uh, in terms of, I'm talking specifically, things like MRIs and CTs. Uh, right. Thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a lot of work right now uh, in particularly... Um, early detection of cancer. Um, and um, again, radiologists are taking large libraries of images and in patients where there's a known outcome where we know cancer, no cancer, and trying to train uh, artificial neural networks primarily to do that kind of pattern recognition. Neural networks are really good at pattern recognition. Uh, that's the basis behind facial recognition software in many cases. And um, yeah, the 3D imaging is uh, a big here. A lot of the mammography is now moving toward 3D imaging, which is an advantage in that there are fewer you have to call back the woman for additional imaging less often because you've already got in a way that additional imaging, those additional views. The downside is there's a bit more radiation, um, there's a higher cost. So, you know, with all of these innovations, it's always important to think not only in terms of the potential benefit, which is fewer callbacks, but also the potential harms and costs because, you know, those are shared by all of us. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose one more I just wanted to run past you, and this probably ties into the 
the differences between the health services between UK and US is, is virtual MDTs. So the way things happen here in the UK is, is you know, if you were to be referred to hospital um, with, say, a suspected cancer, you might see a consultant who will then make a suggestion that you, let's say, for example, need a biopsy. Um, you'd have said biopsy. Then when the results of that are back, a multidisciplinary team uh, meeting is convened with, say, for example, the specialist, uh, uh, maybe a histopathologist, maybe a radiologist, um, and an oncologist, um, and, and whoever needs to be there. But but actually trying to get all those people together is, is sometimes quite difficult. Uh, so one of the proposals put forward was to have virtual MDTs, which seems incredibly simple and you wonder why it's not being done already and it is in some centers but but trying to roll it out um is that something that's already happening in the states or, or something that you think um would be welcome there as well as a suggestion well, i think it's a great idea i'm not aware of I, i'm sure someone is doing it somewhere um we you know we use things like zoom and skype so much in our daily work as academicians i, I would suspect it's probably happening. I think it's a terrific idea. Um, anything that can you know, improve service to patients and, and get them results more efficiently seems like a good idea. And you're right, why, why do people have to be necessarily in the same room nowadays? So Mark, uh, I guess, you know, again, given your experience, is there something do you think uh, that isn't being worked on in this field, the field of cancer in terms of innovation or, or, or transformation um, that perhaps you think yeah, you know, more attention. Yeah, you know, I think um, one thing that probably doesn't get the focus it deserves is just we know a lot of these things that work. We know that colorectal cancer screening and that mammography in the right women and the right age group are good things. Yet, at least in the U.S., large numbers of patients don't get those services, and so it's not that we need necessarily better tests for colorectal cancer, although that would be welcome, we just need to make sure everyone is taking advantage of that or every appropriate patient is. So a lot of it has to do with fidelity to recommendations that we already know about, uh, but we aren't doing as consistently as we should. And here in the U.S., part of that has to do with sort of the opportunistic uh, uh, scattershot and, and relatively disorganized system we all work in. Part of it has to do with lack of health insurance for patients. Um, you know, we have one gastroenterologist in our town of 100,000 who's willing to do a few colonoscopies a week for patients without health insurance. And we really appreciate that. But there are another 20 gastroenterologists who don't. And so, um, you know, those are challenges we face in the U.S. that you don't have in the U.K. because um, you have a, a much better organized um, and centrally funded system. I think it's again, we could get drawn into this, couldn't we? Because it's it's almost like two ends of the spectrum where I'd like to think there's more money in the States, but but it's probably not necessarily directed, uh, as we know, towards a state-funded system. So you have that issue of trying to make sure that a screening program, program is implemented. Uh, whereas in the UK, our challenges sometimes are education about the screening program, uh, and then this, and then on occasion, the, the cost of uh, implementing that screening program. So it's the other end of the spectrum, but in, in both places, there are challenges. Yeah, we have, we spend, I believe, easily more than twice as much per capita as you do in the UK on healthcare. Mm -hmm. And yet our outcomes are the same or worse uh, across many, many different measures. Uh, the US is just such an outlier. If you look at most countries and, and you plot them on a map of uh, a graph that has cost per person and years of life lived, you see a general 
gradual increase in life expectancy as more money is spent. But then the U.S. is this outlier way off to the right, spending twice as much money and yet getting very middling outcomes. So I think we have a lot to learn from other systems, how they organize care and how to do it more efficiently. So, so Mark, in, in the UK, um, the, you know, the primary care physician, the GP, has, has a pretty central role when we're looking at cancer screening and identifying uh, people that, that should be screened or should have uh, further tests. Um, and then we, we rely on the secondary care system to try and actually carry out most of those tests um, to try and help uh, form a diagnosis. Um, do you think, given the challenges you've got within the American healthcare system, that the family physician still plays that central role, or do people tend to bypass when they've got cancer concerns? No, I think the uh, primary care physicians still do play a central role here. I mean, there is a challenge that we don't have enough primary care physicians. Um, the the way the medical uh, school system works here, uh, our students graduate often with $150,000 to $200,000 in debt. Um, and the discrepancy between what a subspecialist like a radiologist makes and what a primary care physician makes is much higher here than in most other countries. And also, I believe in the UK, um, a, a radiologist typically might make two and a half to three times as much as a GP. And so that leads students away from primary care unless they're really dedicated to the concept. Increasingly, patients have difficulty finding a good primary care physician. And so they end up bypassing, not because they want to, but because uh, they have difficulty finding someone uh, to see them. There'll be people listening over, over this side of the pond that, that really would have the same opinion in terms of primary care physicians or GPs. You know, <laughs> we, we've not got enough, but you know, fortunately, um, well, I think so. Anyway, they still qualify with, with a debt, but nowhere near that amount. That's a ridiculous amount of debt. It's it's almost the extent of a mortgage, isn't it? Surely that's incredibly prohibitive to uh, to doing medicine as a career, is it not generally? It is. I mean, physicians are in the U.S. very well paid um, and paid more than in most other countries. And what we sometimes see is if it's a couple, one will choose a primary care specialty, but the other chooses a subspecialty in order to make that higher income to be able to pay back their debt. So it's unfortunate that uh, these decisions, which should be driven by passion and um, you know a love of the field and, and of a particular uh, specialty and, and style of practice, instead can be influenced by debt and, and factors like that. Well, Mark, one of the questions I've been I've been thinking of asking you actually as this conversation has been going on is is really around. Um, so within the UK. You know, we're looking more and more and with the recent publication of something called the 10-year long-term plan, really there's, there's a shift towards care into the community. Uh, and so specifically with regards to cancer, you know, we're looking more and more to try and shift follow-up into the community, wh whether that's through outpatients held in the community or whether it's through peer support um, or even, say, um, using telephone or, or technology. Um, what's, what's the position in the States with community cancer care? Well, I think that's we're seeing the same trends here and, and have been for some time. I think uh, there's relatively little cancer care delivered in the hospital setting. I mean, obviously, surgery, stem cell transplants, things like that. But uh, most radiation therapy, um, uh, certainly chemotherapy, these are all done as outpatients, either in the oncology, typically in the oncology practice. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that has been pushed out into the community. You see uh, surgical centers. You see, um, the, for example, colonoscopy is not done in the hospital. It's typically done in the gastroenterologist's office in terms of cancer screening. So, yeah, I think we've been seeing that trend for a long time, that push into the community. I think it'll be interesting to think about how 
GPs and subspecialists can interact. So for example, around prostate cancer treatment, more and more patients are doing active surveillance. You had the PROTECT trial in the UK, which was really a landmark trial that has informed care here in the US and that really shifted our our view on prostate cancer screening from recommending against to cautiously recommending shared decision-making. And so this active surveillance, is that something that the GP can be part of, you know, so they perhaps see their GP every six months and then see the urologist every year or two for a biopsy. Um, And the GP is the one doing the digital rectal exam and the PSA and interpreting that and then working collaboratively with the urologist. So, you know, I think that looking forward as we develop some of these innovative biomarkers that you've been talking about, that we identify indolent lesions, you know, I think how can the GP work with the subspecialist to manage these patients in the most efficient way possible. And also for the patient, a more comfortable way, someone that they have a relationship with and feel comfortable with. Actually, so the, uh, with regard specifically to prostate cancer, that's becoming more and more well-developed here in terms of active surveillance done within the community. Yeah, I think you're way ahead of us there in, in, in terms of that, because I really don't know many family physicians or or GPs here in the U.S. who are doing or participating in the active surveillance. It's something the urologists are kind of keeping to themselves. And I I think hopefully going forward, we can see more of that here and learn from your experience. I think that's probably one of those uh, which is linked to the stream of funding, I'm sure, Mark. Yes, I didn't even have to say that. (laughs) Mark, thank you so much for taking the time for talking to us today. I think it's been an interesting experience for me, not not least with the technology of trying to do this over the computer and over the internet, uh, but actually speaking to somebody that works over in the States. And as you witnessed from our conversation, I really didn't have much of an understanding of the American healthcare system. It's been fascinating to hear about your, your experiences in terms of cancer screening and your global travels. Um, I'm hoping at some point, if you're ever in the UK, it'd be great to actually meet up and, and, and have a conversation face to face. I hope it's been of some use to you. Uh, I hope the people out there that are listening to this find some benefit in in, in our in listening to our conversation. One final thing that I have to ask you is 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 whether you'd be happy for us to post some contact details with the podcast. So if people have got specific questions, they can pose them to you. That'd be fine. And I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm looking forward. I'll actually be in London in late March, and I'm going to be doing a Fulbright in Dublin for three months, uh, beginning in about ten days. Fantastic. What's, uh, did you say a Fulbright? What's that? So the Fulbright is a state U.S. State Department program. It was. Uh, it's been around for about fifty years uh, since World War II, uh, the end of World War II. It may be longer than that. And um, each year, about eight hundred students and faculty go to sites around the world and do research and teaching. I'll be working with Dr. Tom Fahey at RCSI in Dublin, working on early cancer detection and cancer screening. It's been really interesting speaking to Mark today. It's clear that there are some big differences within cancer screening particularly, as well as cancer treatment between the US and the UK. Some of that is driven by the availability of technology. Some of that, it seems, is driven by the healthcare system. In the UK, we're quite fortunate where we've got a state-funded system, so our challenge really is about balancing cost of some of these innovations. In the United States, they've got different challenges because it seems they've got problems in terms of identifying people and screening them, principally because of the way the healthcare system has developed. It is clear from my conversation, as well as my work with the Innovation Exchange, that there are some incredibly exciting innovations coming our way within healthcare. 
Cancer care is going to change dramatically over the next five to ten years. As primary care professionals, we are going to be at the forefront of some of this innovation. It will be crucial that we help our patients make the right decision about their care. Just a quick reminder from me, if you are planning any initiatives locally, always involve NHS England to make sure your plans fit within the national guidelines.